Hello everyone, welcome to Diamond Gems with Avi Kravitz, where I talk to members of the diamond industry and lovers of diamonds and jewelry to tell the story of the diamond market, sharing our experiences, learning from each other and understanding what diamonds truly mean to each of us. We're all different and so are our diamonds. Let's celebrate that, whether you're a miner, a manufacturer, a dealer, designer or a jeweler because stories apply to everyone in the diamond industry and our ability to grow as individuals, as businesses and as an industry depends largely on the way we reveal those hidden gems. South Africa's alluvial miners tend to keep a low profile, which is why my conversation with Lyndon de Malin was so revealing. Lyndon represents a segment of the market that faces many challenges but can make a real difference. Our discussion ranges from the geological causes of alluvial mining, particularly along the Orange River where Lyndon is active, why the sector has declined in recent years despite its untapped potential, South Africa's artisanal miners, the state of the global market, and of course we get an update on that magnificent protea pink diamond that Lyndon's company recovered and sold in June this year for some eight million dollars. I learned a lot from this discussion. I'm sure you will too so please enjoy my conversation with Lyndon DeMalin. Lyndon thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm excited to learn new things about a very different part of the diamond industry. We met a few weeks ago at the Kimberley International Diamond Symposium which was very focused on the geology of diamond mining in South Africa and particularly along the Orange River and I just fell in love with that area of the country of the industry. So maybe we can start by um, just going into a bit of your background. How did you come to the diamond industry? And maybe you can give a bit of an, an overview of what you do within the industry. Okay, Avi, thanks, thanks first of all for having me. It, it's a privilege for me to be here. I grew up in the Eastern Cape in a town called Yutnaik or Kariha as it's called now. And when I finished matric, uh, my parents didn't have money to send me to university. But they said they would uh, sign surety for me to apply for a loan at the bank. So I, I, I was a, a poor student when, when I studied. And as a result of that, I had to do a lot of uh, VAC jobs and, and work during my vacations to, to get some uh, pocket money. And one of my VAC jobs was with uh, the Beers Marine at that time. Uh, now, when I got my degree, there was a bit of money available for, to do a master's in oceanography. So I thought, oh, if I do a, a master's in oceanography, the Beers Marine will surely pick me up and they'll put me in Cape Town and the rest of my life I'll, work, I'll live in Cape Town. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that didn't happen. The Beers did employ me eventually, uh, but they sent me to Kimberley. And not only that, I got to Kimberley, they gave me a caravan and they said, there you go. And they put me in the middle of nowhere where I stayed for about three years doing exploration work for, for the Beers. Uh, what was great about that was that the training program that the Beers had at that time was really excellent for young geos. Uh, and we spent a lot of time with, with some of the real experts in the field, uh, like Mike Skinner, Jock Roby, uh, John Bristow, uh, Herman Grutter, those guys who really developed the, the nomenclature on Kimberlites, which was excellent. After about five years, I, I decided that, that I'm not a, a corporate type of uh, person and uh, I think I probably always had this sort of uh, entrepreneurial spirit that I eventually wanted to do my own thing. Uh, I then joined a small company called Moonstone Diamonds. Uh, they had a, a boat on the west coast and they were looking for somebody to look for, for some inland deposits that they could mine and uh, 
that's where I started with the Middle Orange River because uh, I heard about the two small junior miners mining a deposit on the Middle Orange River. There was nobody else on the Middle Orange River at that time except for them. Uh, they were called uh, Eddie and Vic Pinar. And they managed to solve the problem with the banded ironstone in those deposits because the banded ironstone made it too heavy for, for normal concentration methods to, to actually work the gravel. And they put big magnets in and they solved it. And I convinced them to, to sign an option for Moonstone to buy the deposit and all the equipment. Uh, unfortunately, Moonstone didn't make it, but uh, John Bristow and I managed to convince a couple of investors and we listed a company called Gem Diamonds, the first Gem Diamonds, not the one that we're seeing at the moment, uh -huh. a different one. And we mined that for a while and then uh, eventually we merged it with Transhex. Uh, and then we did that happened, I, I did again decided I'm not a big company man and uh, I went and started my own consulting firm called Paleostone uh, Mineral Consultants. And I did consulting work for about 10, 12 years. Uh, until I did a little work for one of the local guys in the Douglas area called Skulkstein uh, and he eventually helped me through a sort of a soft loan to buy my own equipment and start my own operation uh, about 10 years ago. I see. That Middle Orange River area has a lot of history um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong but it's essentially that's where the, the industry started in, in South Africa, right? Um, De Kalk is where the Eureka was found. Correct. Um, so it's kind of surprising to me that there wasn't more co consistent mining activity in that area um, over the years. Well, the problem is that, uh, I mean, there's two sections to the Middle Orange. There's, there's the section of the, let's call it the Puya Orange River up to the confluence. And then, then there's the Orange River downstream of the confluence, after the confluence with the Vol River. So mm -hmm. the section of the con confluence uh, above the, or the river above the confluence where the Kalk was, the source of those diamonds is mainly Lesotho, which is 500 kilometers away. So the, the yeah. grade of those deposits are extremely low. So the, the, the initial guys worked the sort of deflation layer at the top that was sort of semi-concentrated and that had a bit of a higher grade. Mm -hmm. And the same for the deposits downstream of the confluence. But underneath that, there was a very hard and thick calcrete layer that they could not break through. And that stopped them. So they moved upstream from there. They, they found the Vaal River. They found Barclay West uh, and, and the richer deposits along the Vaal River. And then eventually they found Kimberley. And then uh, the, the Orange River was forgotten because the grade was so low. Right. And that's yeah. the reason why it was never really worked extensively until about uh, 15, 20 years ago when the guys went back with bigger machines, better equipment. Uh, and sort of re we rediscovered the, the Orange River and, and actually it was a phenomenal discovery because the quality of the stones there was just uh, off the chart. I didn't realize it was so recent that it was, as you say, rediscovered. Yes. Which is kind of fascinating. And, and we, uh, you know, from what you've told me, that Middle Orange River achieves among the highest average prices in the global market today. But I, I would like to take a bit of a step back and, and bearing in mind that our audience is an international audience and maybe not so familiar with the geography of South Africa and also not necessarily uh, familiar with the mining terms and the technicalities of mining. But I'm interested in alluvial mining and how that um, comes about. You, you mentioned that those Middle Orange River discoveries probably came from Lesotho. And there's a, that confluence with the Vol um, sort of being a tributary. 
into the Orange and my understanding is that there's also alluvial mining along the Vaal River. Um, And so how does that occur? You know, those diamonds come from some kimberlite source and there are various kimberlite mines that are in South Africa that are operating in in Lesotho. Have those all fed into the Orange um, through some massive volcanic eruption millions of years ago? Is that... Uh, Well, it's complicated, but it's also a very beautiful (laughs) geological story. The confluence area, within 30 kilometer radius of the confluence of the Val and the Orange River, there's also the Reed River coming in. Now, the Reed River drains the the Jagersfontein and Koffiefontein mines. Mm. The Val River drains the the Kimberley mines. And then the Val River, the Orange River, before the confluence drains, uh, obviously the the source of diamonds there is is Kao and Letzing and and, and those Kimberlites. So it's actually a phenomenal story that you have six or seven world-class Kimberlites within the drainage of these three rivers that all contribute. Now, the geological story behind it is that when the Kimberlites came up about 90 to 120 million years ago, the Kimberlites in that area, Southern Africa just broken off sort of out of Gondwana land. So Africa and Gondwana land and North America, South America split. And suddenly Southern Africa had a coastline and you had massive erosion. So you had these big Kimberlites that came out, the volcanic eruptions, uh, but you also have massive erosion because of upliftment and because of the, the climate at that stage. So the Kimberlites today and the level of Kimberley where it is today, we've probably lost about 900 to 1,000 meters vertically of Kimberlite and diamonds. And remember, there's not only those Kimberlites, there's about probably about five, 600 Kimberlites in Southern Africa. Right. Not all of them carry diamonds, not all of them are economical to mine, but they all contribute a little bit. So all those diamonds have ended up in the rivers at one stage, but the problem is at that stage, uh, the rivers were flowing mainly on the Karoo sediments, which is mudstones and, 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 and sandstones. So there was nothing to trap these diamonds on land. Mm-hmm. So most of these diamonds, billions of carats literally, was washed down to the ocean, to the coast. And that's another phenomenal geological story to explain. It's only when once the rivers cut down to the base of what we call the Duwaika uh, Tellite that it's found big clots and boulders and stuff to build gravel bars in the rivers, which form sort of a neck to catch the diamonds, that the deposits of today started to form. Okay, I think I understood that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, these are are different types of rock that are um, of different, uh, let's say, texture or strength that are able to hold those diamonds from and prevent them from flowing further into the the ocean. Okay. I didn't realize it was three rivers that, uh, and, and I actually thought that those Kimberley, Kimberlites w- would have fed into the, the Orange River. Yeah, the, the Vaal River and even the Reed River at, at some yeah. place are quite close to Kimberley. So the, the Kimberley Kimberlites could even have fed down back into the Reed River as well, if you look at the popula- diamond populations. But if you look at the populations of these rivers, you can clearly see differences yeah. in terms of value per carat, which tells you that they come from different types of Kimberlites. And only after the confluence do they all actually all mix into yeah. one population. And then just to go back to the, 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 the coastal structure, I mean, if nothing else, there weren't special circumstances at the coast because you've stripped, say, a thousand or more meters, you'd have had a massive delta and all these diamonds would have been buried and dispersed. Mm-hmm. But we had this unique circumstances at the coast of a very energetic wave regime with longshore currents that actually lifted the, the sediment up and transported it down, uh, up uh, to the north while the diamonds which were heavy sank down into little gullies and whatever and they were concentrated. Uh-huh. In India you had a similar set- setup but there you had the Bay of Bengal but nothing concentrated there because you didn't have this energetic wave system to actually keep the diamonds and concentrate them. 
So the, the geological gods were actually very, very favorable to South Africa. And it seems we're still reaping the benefits because there, there is a, and maybe this is going to steer us a bit away from the geological discussion, but there's a sense that the resource in South Africa is somewhat depleted. And, and I think the, the reason for that is that we look at those big Kimberlite mines where you can really measure the resource, you know, of of, you know, Cullinan and Finch still have some life in them, but, you know, Jachesfontein and those Kimberley mines are no longer, you know, producing diamonds um, from the Kimberlite um, yeah. source. And so there's this perception out there that South Africa's resource is dwindling. Is that correct? I think it's, to a certain degree, it's correct because our Kimberlite mines are old. They've been worked for many years and uh, they're deep and they have to really put a lot of cost into developing deeper sections of the of the kimberlite mines. Uh, Venetia is also now it's our youngest kimberlite mine, and it, that's gone underground now as well. So yeah, it, it definitely uh, in terms of kimberlites, uh, the resource is getting smaller. I think in terms of alluvial, we probably have another hundred years left in terms of what our current mining rate. But it's going to be uh, very difficult mining in terms of ultra low grades and you're going to need special circumstances and special regulations to allow you to mine these deposits uh, profitable mm. because it, it's very high risk to mine them. Before we get into those sort of challenges, again, I think, you know, for the layman, what one thinks that an alluvial mine is you just walk along the beach <laughs> and take a, a handful of sand and you'll ultimately find a diamond or two in there. But these are big mechanized operations at the end of the day, right? Yeah, look, today's alluvial mine is quite a big operation. Uh, if you want to compensate for the for the high variability in grade and the low grades you've got to process just gravel about at least a hundred thousand tons a month excluding stripping now many of the deposits today that's still available to mine uh, have got thick calcrete layers on top that needs blasting or you need big bulldozers 120 ton bulldozers actually to break them uh, many of the deposits have, have thick stripping and you need big excavators just to strip fast enough to, to allow you to get down to the gravel. Mm. So yeah, although it, it's not in, in general terms big mines, we need big equipment and, and quite a big capital outlay today to, to be able to mine them profitably in South Africa. Right. And so you alerted me to a study that was done on South Africa's alluvial mining sector. And th there's been quite a substantial drop off over the last two decades. The number of mining operations has dwindled. Is that a function of sorting out which operations were economically viable? Or is there something deeper that has not been addressed in South Africa or that the risk involved is too great to take on those operations? Yeah, I think it's a bit more complicated than that. If, if we take a step back and, and, and look at diamond production in South Africa in general, South Africa produces about 9 million carats per annum, of which the alluvial guys produce about 350,000 carats. So we produce about 4% of the volume, right. but the value of our production is about 25% of the total tax. So it, that already tells you the quality of our diamonds is, is just really exceptional. Most of the, these deposits are situated in, in rural areas where there's not a lot of, a lot of development, uh, where unemployment is high. So they play a crucial role in the economies of these small small, small towns. Next to agriculture, it's, it's generally the biggest uh, employer. Mm -hmm. you know? Now, we have been mining diamonds in South Africa since the late 1960s. And in terms of 
alluvial deposits, we probably have another 100 years left. But the low grade uh, of these deposits is, is a big issue. And not only the low grade, also the high variability of grade. Uh, and, and, and the grade is generally highly erratic. And this, this makes these deposits very high risk to mine from a financial point of view. And is probably the main reason why the banks and the IDC and even the government refuses to fund these operations because the risk is too high. Okay. Now, the report that I shared with you was done by the Aon Institute of the Nelson Mandela University. It showed that the number of small and junior mining companies in the diamond space have decreased by about 80% in the past 16 years, hmm. with a loss of about 20,000 jobs. Now, this decline generally started when the MPRDA was promulgated in 2002. Can you, uh, can you explain what that is? What the, that? Sorry, that's the Mineral and Petroleum Resource Development Act. That's the act that governs how we mine and how we are allowed to mine in South Africa and all the that's rules it. and regulations that goes with it. Um, across all minerals? Across all minerals, yeah. yeah. Now, the study found that the main reason for the decline was the cost of compliance to these mining regulations. Now, to offset the extremely high grade and high value variability of these deposits, you need a regulatory environment that is honest, consistent and inexpensive to comply with. We did a calculation about two years ago and it showed that the cost of compliance for a small operator is about 7% of the, the production cost. Okay. Now that, that's totally crazy. I mean, if you add that, you add to that the 5% export level. So before you even start mining, you're 12% down. And, and there's very few minerals that you can mine, regardless of these high-risk, uh, low-grade deposits that can actually stand such a statistic. We need health and safety, environmental and social responsibility regulations that are tailor-made for the industry. Uh, now, I'm not implying that we should work unsafe or damage the environment or, or shirk our, our, our social responsibilities, but the regulatory authorities should recognize that we are mining an ultra-low-grade deposit uh, with high financial risk in rural areas with little infrastructure. These are generally open-cast operations at shallow depth, so they, they're generally safe to mine, and our, our health and safety record actually attests to that. Uh, you know, there, there's not a lot of accidents or incidents on, on our mines. Although our capital outlay in many instances is large, as we need big machines to break through these calculated layers, uh, and stripping, we are generally small to medium scale operations and we don't need these rules and regulations that was actually developed for the underground big gold mines. Right. And they are being applied to us by some, I think, very young and very zealous inspectors uh, <laughs> that are very yeah, stringent on the junior in industry, yeah. which is unfortunate. What is really concerning about this report was that we sent it to government, we sent it to the minister, we put it in the press. And up to today, no, no government official has come back to us and said, hell guys, there's a big problem here. Let's sit around the table, let's discuss it. How can we solve this? There's been no, no action from government. Mm -hmm. That's a big concern to us. Well, well, could it be that, you know, in the greater scheme of things, it's a relatively small industry when you consider South Africa's full spectrum of mining that takes place here across various uh, minerals. You think, you know, you think gold, you think platinum, you think various other, and even within the diamond industry, so the alluvial, that those 350,000 carats, you know, are maybe lower priority for the government. Well, uh, I don't quite agree. Now, if you think about jobs, 20,000 jobs is a lot of jobs. And it's not 20,000 jobs in the cities. It's in these rural areas where, yeah. where there's very little development. There's very few jobs. I mean, the, the unemployment rate in these areas is probably double the country average. Mm. 
and yet there's no effort to really get in there and solve these issues. Why are we bleeding jobs like this? You know, what is wrong with the legislation? What can we do to help? And and, and that's something that we need to get, and we're trying to get across the government, but right, with very little right. success at this stage. Okay, so at the end of the day, it's left to the private sector to, to find solutions and figure out a way to mine these operations cost effectively. Yeah, but we can only go so far. I mean, you've yeah. got regulation that you've got to uh, abide by. Uh, and if the cost of complying to those legislation becomes too high, then you, you can't afford it. Mm. And especially these really low-grade and high-risk deposits, you, you can't do it, and, and that's a problem. Right. You, you mentioned 100 years of mining. What does that mean? Is that at a rate of, you know, those 350,000 carats a year? Probably at that rate, but, I mean, there's so much potential to, to expand that. There's so many deposits that, that at this stage people are, are running away from because the costs and, and the risk is too high, because yeah. there's so many other extra costs that you've got to add to it. Uh, I think the potential is there to at least double what we're doing at the moment and even more. Uh, but we need the right economical conditions and we need the right regulation to make it profitable for us. And, and that's very difficult now. Right. As our global diamond mining production seems to have peaked, there aren't there those mega new deposits that are, yeah. are being developed. And so that makes the, your proposition all the more attractive. You know. I think so, and also the quality of, of what we produce, uh, the quality range that we produce is, is exceptional, you know, it's in that top 1% of mm. the diamond quality in the world that's being produced. And not only that, we have to attract investors, we have to have re regulation legislation that makes it investor friendly, we, because Afri South Africa is, is still largely unexplored. I, I firmly believe that there's at least one more world-class kimberlite to be found in South Africa, it's probably buried under Karoo sediments, it's probably difficult to find. But but if you look at what we have found, it's unlikely that there's, there's not at least one more for us to find. But then, you know, you need the investors to come in and say, oh, but we're going to spend money here yeah, because we know it's a good investment and it's a safe investment. Well, the, I mean, that's very exciting news um, <laughs> that, that there's this potential mega mine out there. It seems that across the industry, though, that there is less exploration taking place. What you just said surprises me because, especially in a, a market like South Africa, where we would have recognized all the kimberlites that are out there and assessed their potential. But it sounds to me that across the board, there has been um, a, a decline in investment in exploration for new deposits um, worldwide, and it sounds like in, in South Africa as well. Yeah, um, absolutely. But I, I think there is quite a lot of competition to attract the little bit of investment that is going to exploration right. to the right places. And uh, at, at this stage, if you look at the statistics, South Africa is, is right, real, really at the back of the queue, you know. Yeah. People are yeah. ra rather going into, I mean, there's a lot of activity in Angola at the moment, Botswana, yeah. be because the, the legislation and, and the whole setup on, on how you invest and how, how safe it is to invest and, and the return on your investment is so much better there. So, the money is going to go there. The money is not going to come to South Africa. We, mm -hmm. we, at this stage, it, it's a really unfriendly inv investment uh, environment. Right. Okay. So you, you wear a number of hats. As a mining entrepreneur, as you described yourself, you're also involved in, in marketing those diamonds independently through your tender house. And then you're also involved in the South African Diamond Producers 
organization, SADPO, which is a, an umbrella organization for alluvial miners in South Africa. Is that that's is that correct. A correct yes. Yeah, you can look okay. at it. So, what is the role of SADPO? Is that really uh, to lobby governments dealing with those sort of legislative issues that you mentioned? And then I would imagine also to maintain some sort of a structure within the alluvial mining sector. The main aim of SADPO is to streamline the small and medium diamond mining sector by interacting specifically with government on legislation and regulation that impact the industry. We have just now again been invited uh, because the uh, government is again looking at the MPRDA and, and, and making changes to it and uh, we have again been invited to make submissions and I think in general the government sees us as the representing the, the smaller side of the diamond industry. Right, okay, so that, so that makes sense and it's encouraging that there is that structure. Before I, I've spent a bit of time um, looking into the, the South African diamond scene across the board, both on the mining side and also on the beneficiation side. My impression before was that it's kind of the Wild West, that there isn't the structure that it has. And so it's very encouraging. There is a, a concerted effort to engage with government on these um, sort of legislative challenges. And, and that government is at least reconsidering that act. That, again, gives us some reason to, to be optimistic. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, it, it, I think it used to be the Wild West. <laughs> You're absolutely yeah. correct. But I must say that uh, in the past 20, 25 years, the, the industry has become a lot more professional. The standards have increased a lot. Uh, I mean, even the environmental awareness has increased a lot. Uh, and if you look at the historical legacies that was left behind by, by the guys 30 years ago, and you look at the, the diamond mine of today, it, it's two totally different things. We, right. we really do a good job in terms of environmental and rehabilitation. Right. I, I would like to touch on the artisanal mining sector, which is um, also something that's, that not many in the broader trade is necessarily aware of the level of artisanal mining that takes place in the diamond industry in South Africa. And, and given that there are all these deposits that are not being um, invested in, that leaves many of them sort of abandoned. And, and so it, you would naturally have in, informal miners coming into those sites and seeking their fortune. Yeah. Um, and so that brings a lot of challenges to the industry. Um, but it also, I think, there's some opportunity within some of the operations. There's, there's some very encouraging projects to involve the informal sector in those alluvial deposits. So it, does SADPO engage with the informal artisanal miners um, on, on that level in, in some way? Yes, we, SADPO assists all, all sizes of operations. Now the artisanal operations on the west coast, we've, we've just started a committee on, on the west coast as well to, to represent those guys and bring them into the SADPO field. So wherever we can, we, we assist all kinds of operations, even beneficiaries uh, we try to assist. But I think we need to maybe just talk a little bit about the artisanal operations. Uh, I think there's, there's a bit of a myth in, in, in South Africa at the moment that uh, a lot of uh, upliftment and community development can be done by artisanal mining. But I think the reality is that we've been mining uh, minerals in South Africa since the, the late 1860s and the easy stuff is gone. There is still some uh, deposits along the west coast that can be worked, let's call it by pick and shovel methods, by, by you know, really small scale stuff. But all, this, all the, the artisanal miners that's in the news lately that the police stop and, and those stuff, 
they are actually tunneling under thick stripping to get to rich deposits underneath and and those deposits are not suited for artisanal mine they, they should be worked by big machines to remove the stripping and, and in a lot safer way i think in general in south africa we should be more focused on on, on creating a small to junior mining sector uh, because they, the, the potential is there to, to mine these small deposits that's too small for the bigger companies to mine. And, and I think that's being neglected at the moment. And then involving those communities. And, and they can be involved there. I mean, ideally... In terms of job creation. Exactly. I mean, a guy who's going to go and work with a, with a pick and shovel and wheelbarrow, he's not going to have a pan or a concentrating mechanism or x-ray to, to treat his stuff. So mm. if you have one centralized plant and you have 100 or whatever guys with on small claims along the west coast, I mean, our, our areas on, on the middle Orange River, you'll work for two years, you won't find a diamond, the grade is so low. But there the grade is different and, and, and higher, and there they can do it if the, if the stripping allows it. There's no thick stripping on there. Yeah. Then they can do it, but each guy can take his bag of concentrate and take it to a central plant and then post it. And then, of course, also have a, a good marketing system for them because you don't want them to go and sell their, their, their goods on the black market because mm. they get half the value that they should get and, and set up yeah. a pr proper marketing system for them. And I, I know there are guys trying to get something like that, that going on the West Coast, and that's phenomenal. That's the way it should go. Yeah, I recently visited the West Coast, and again, for our international listeners, that's the West Coast of South Africa, which is basically the Orange River flows through South Africa and then along the Namibian border and meets the Atlantic Ocean on the, on the West Coast of South Africa. And so there's a lot of um, diamond mining and alluvial mining that takes place on, along that, that sort of strip. Yeah. Um, that's me pretending to be an expert in, <laughs> in, this, uh, in this issue. But it, during my visit there, there were some fascinating and really uh, wonderful projects that, that I saw. The, the one being at the, at the Barkin Mine, where they are involved with the surrounding community and empowering those informal miners, artisanal miners, yeah. to mine their goods and also market their goods. They're involved in the, in the whole process. It was, it was really a, an eye-opener. And I think if one can attract investment in these projects, I think that's the ultimate solution, that it brings some structure and engagement with the surrounding communities, creates some sort of a job creation and economic um, yeah. So, Lyndon, before we close, I wouldn't be doing my job if we didn't mention the Protea Pink, <laughs> which made headlines across the, the industry. In June, you, so, you sold it. It was such a beautiful pink stone, and it was from your operation on, on the Middle Orange. Along right. the Middle Orange, okay. yeah. yeah. All right. So, how prevalent are those um, special pink diamonds um, or special stones in general? Then? Well, uh, I think the Middle Orange River has now gotten a name as, as an area where they do occur. The source of these pinks are probably cow. Uh, the Kimberlite in Lesotho, okay. which is about 500 k's away as a crow flies. Uh, so it's actually amazing that these stones actually survive all the way down and, and get trapped in these terraces along the Orange River. Uh, there has been a couple of pinks coming out. The, the Pratia pink is, is a really special stone. It, it's really got an amazing depth of color. It's being polished at the moment uh, it, and, and it's just getting better as, as, as it gets <laughs> polished. So we're also very anxious to see what comes out of it, but it looks very, very positive at this stage. Are you involved in yes, the Yes, we, we did keep a little bit of an okay. interest in this stone, yeah. So, yeah. so can you reveal to us what's being processed? Well, uh, it'll definitely be probably a, a plus 10, but the color at this stage, it's better than we thought. So it, uh, we're very excited about it, yeah. Okay. So it looks very good. Um, what sort of timeline are you looking at? Is, is, that, being pro is that being polished in South Africa? Partly, uh, yeah. and then uh, being finished in New York. 
and, and a lot of people don't don't realize it, but we actually have some amazing polishing facilities in South Africa. Some of the, the big stones, the really special stones uh, that are discovered every year are actually polished in South Africa. And it's actually something that, that a lot of people don't know about, but yeah. Well, it's been another eye-opening thing for me while I've been, while I've been here that, I think you're right, there are still sizable operations here in South Africa. And, and what I've really enjoyed learning about is the beneficiation sector in South Africa because what you have here that you don't have in in Namibia and Botswana is a real nurturing of entrepreneurship within the beneficiation space. Yeah. Um in, in Botswana and Namibia they you know they, you have these factories that are creating jobs but you don't have Botswana own you know manufacturing and in yes. South Africa you do yes. and I think that's yes. really uh, it's really unique I think yeah. it's, it's and, and I think we've got to be realistic you know we, we're never going to compete with India or those places sure. with, with polishing yeah. we don't we, our labor is just too expensive uh, our kimberlite mines are also uh, old and deep you know we, we can't produce the volumes that Botswana is producing and make that volume available to local beneficiators so we must be, always be realistic of, of what we can do in South Africa we can do beneficiation to some degree, uh, but the focus should be on production. That's where we're going to create the most jobs. Let's yeah. get to the regulations, everything in place to push production of rough, because with, with beneficiation, we, we, we're never going to become a big player in it because it's just impossible. You can't yeah. compete with the other guys. So yeah. I, I think uh, government must realize that that, that that is the way that we should go. I, I have a, a bit of a heavy final question for you. And that is, how do you see the industry developing, firstly in the short term, and uh, you know, you, you're investing in, in mining operations, in marketing of diamonds. What's your sort of outlook for, the, for, for two, three, five years forward? Look, I, I think what's happened now uh, for, for us in the alluvial mining is, is a unique circumstance. Generally, when there was a downturn in the market, and I'm not talking about the crash of 2008 or COVID, but if there's a downturn, we were relatively immune, you know, because we're producing that top section of, 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 of the bracket of, of diamonds. Uh, there's always people wanting to buy those stones. But what has happened in the past two years is that uh, lab-grown diamonds have, have started to, to encroach on that. Now suddenly you have one carat, two carat, three carat, four carat lab-grown diamonds competing with what was, used to be our sort of exclusive area of, mm. of expertise mm. and, and, and production. Uh, and that has hit the price of our production severely. Combine that with the global economic turndown, uh, with with the, the glut of production that came in after COVID, when the, right. the prices yeah. suddenly spiked, with with the problems in China, with what happened in in the Ukraine, and suddenly you have this 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 problem that we've never had. And and the other problem is that it started to happen over about a six seven month period. Prices started to drop, and the guys got in slowly got into problem trouble and trouble and trouble. And now suddenly it's dropped forty percent. And it's not going to be a V type of recovery. It's, mm. it's going to take a while to recover. And our producers can't handle that. This diamond market is going to be catastrophic for the producers in South Africa. Mm. In a year's time, if this doesn't change quickly, we're probably going to lose another 50% of our producers because we don't have the cash flow right. to sustain ourselves through such a long period. If it's a V type recovery like we had, or, or, or fall and recovery like we had at COVID or in 2008, we can we can survive hmm. but this is going to be catastrophic and we're going to have big problems i think in the long term i think probably in a year's time i think the diamond market is probably going to be different 
I think uh, at some stage there's going to be some kind of a shortage uh, developing. I think lab grown is going to completely fall out of uh, out of phase with everything that's happening. Uh, the prices are just going to the bottom's going to drop out. Uh, and I think in long term there is going to develop a shortage of. And for us as as Olivia producers, I think we're going to be in the right bracket. But we've got to survive for the next six months. Those guys who can't survive for six months are going sure. to be gone. And that's a problem. And it, it's a big issue. Right. I promise you it's a big issue. We're going to see big problems with Africa. And globally, but that, that's quite a dire uh, synopsis <laughs> that, you've given, that you've given me. I actually think, you know, the measures that the trade is taking and the industry is taking to, you know, to freeze rough, rough buying for, for two months. The beers is being very flexible with their, with their supply. Yeah. Um, I, I think that will rebalance the market come come January, February. Yeah. And so I'm really keeping an eye on that first quarter in, um, uh, yeah. in, in 24, that we firstly don't start that same unhealthy sort of cycle again yeah. of, um, over of over, you know, mm. over, you know, the, taking a more measured approach yeah. to, to the market. And, you know, I think also the, those retail inventories would have, would have fallen, yeah. come down yeah. by then. So I'm hoping, and I, I think that there will be some sort of, uh, at least a stable, more stable um, market environment. In, I in think the by February we'll, we should start to see the direction what it's going to take. Yeah. But I'm afraid it, it's going to be too slow for for our, our guys. It's yeah. we've already seen yeah. some some liquidations. We've already seen a lot of guys just closing down in our own operations. Um, I mean, we've 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 cut overtime. We've cut all capital spending, and we're seriously considering stopping. For a month or two really? because at this okay. stage your diamond is worth more in the ground than it is in your hand right for us. right interesting um, um i mean how easy is it to to pause an alluvial operation like that? it, it depends know. how you gear it if, if you've got a lot of debt and you've got a lot of hp payments on machines and, and mo- most of us have yeah uh it's a big problem right you, you can't right. just stop right. uh and that's why i say uh, there's there's going to be a lot of blood in the streets in the diamond industry <laughs> in the next couple of months. Well, let's hope that you you recover a few more pinks. Um, <laughs> that, that, that'll <laughs> see now and then, <laughs> and, uh, and then we'll get us get us all through. Um, so uh, let, let's let's end with something uh, maybe a bit more uh, upbeat. And uh, you, you know, what, what's what's your favourite thing about the diamond industry? So uh, that I, I think you? for me, the, the, there's, there's probably two things. I think the one is that I see it from a geological point of view. I, I see the coincidence and, and the absolute amazing things that happened that, that actually kept the diamonds back and, and how they concentrated and, and there, there's a lot of people say, you know, there's a saying in the diamond business, a diamond is like a picket and lays where it wants to, you know, but, but, but it's not, it, 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 there's actually a pattern, the diamond is a, is a very heavy mineral and it gets concentrated in very specific areas in, in rivers and I think the challenge of finding those areas to me is probably part of it and there's also uh, probably a bit of gambling in it you know <laughs> it's that 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 time you open the box and there's that special stone you know and, and it, often it happens when you sort of you don't have money to buy diesel and, and uh, everybody wants money and, and and it changes it again you know I, I think it's that excitement yeah. that that's probably what what it and yeah. gets in your blood once yeah, you're there you well, whenever whenever I'm I'm on a mining site, I'm always looking, and you know, even though I know, even if at the the very remote chance that there might be, a, you know, a diamond yeah. that, is, that I can't pick it up, 
but there is the there is something um, exciting about uh, I uh, always about tell people the, that, the that search, you know. if you if you if you pick up a diamond on one of my sides you can keep it but because your chances of picking a diamond <laughs> up because the grade is so low you probably got a better chance of, of winning the lotto twice in a row than picking up a diamond <laughs> well, stranger <laughs> things have happened um, Lyndon thank you so much for a fascinating discussion and uh, for your time and, and expertise and um, really a, a fascinating side of the diamond industry. Thank you for, for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Diamond Gems with Avi Kravitz. Please check out my website, avikravitz.com, for more information on how you and your brand can tell your diamond story. Contact me for advertising opportunities, subscribe to my YouTube channel, follow me on Instagram and TikTok, and connect with me on LinkedIn, all under the ticker Abby Kravitz. And subscribe to my newsletter where I share my insights about the diamond market, along with other useful tidbits that I come across. Let's share our experiences we're lucky enough to have in this incredible industry of ours, because stories apply to everyone in the diamond industry. 